Uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9. You have been created for joy. And you've been created not just for any kind of joy, but eternal, unending joy. That's a pretty remarkable thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty great. To think that you are here right now, that you exist, that you didn't create yourself, but you were brought into existence, you were created, and now you're here through no doing of your own, and to discover that the reason why you're here, the reason why you were created, was to experience delight, is a pretty remarkable thing. Truly, we exist in the best of all possible worlds. The best of all possible existences. There's a catch, though. Now, it's not actually a catch. It's actually part of the good news. It's part of what makes this the best of all possible existences. And yet, to the sinful heart, this is going to feel like a catch. And that's the fact that while we have been created for joy, that joy is to be derived from a particular object, and that's God. The Scripture tells us that man was created to glorify God, and the way that we do this, the way that we glorify God, is by enjoying Him forever and ever. You see this fact expressed in the greatest commandment. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus tells us, Mark 12, uh, verses 29 and 30, He says, the most, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So God creates man in Genesis 1. We learn that man is made in the image of God to glorify Him. And what does this look like? What does it mean to glorify God? You see it stated in the very first of the Ten Commandments. You go back to the Ten Commandments, and the very first command is, You shall have no other gods before me. So what does God want from His people? The answer is worship. And the very first command of the law states that God must be exalted above everything else. He is to be magnified as he takes preeminence over all things. And yet as Jesus reminds us here in Mark 12, this is not a preeminence that's supposed to occur in word and actions only, but in our very hearts and minds. God wants us to love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. The whole of the person is to be engaged in the act of worship. And this means that what God actually commands from us is that we delight in Him. He commands us to glorify His name by taking pleasure in Him. Really, all of the law comes back to this point. Even this part about loving our neighbor, it's all stating that what God desires from His people is that they would take their joy and their delight in Him. And this is actually unspeakably good news, because God is good. 
He is the source of every good thing. And this means that all good things are simply an expression of the goodness and beauty of God himself. They are even designed so that his invisible and unseen attributes, this God who man can never see in the full expression of his glory, that this God might be seen and understood and enjoyed. There is no greater gift than this. There is no greater calling that a creature can have than to behold the beauty of that which is most beautiful and rejoice over it. There is no greater gift that any creature could receive than to have the privilege of delighting in that object which is most delightful. Our problem is that post-Genesis 3... We live in a fallen world with fallen hearts and fallen minds, darkened minds. We possess this sin nature which causes us to reject the beauty and goodness of God and attempt to replace it with the things that he's made. We attempt to worship the creation instead of the creator. And so we can't always comprehend how this is good news to be told that God wants us to find our delight in him. It can feel like tyranny. It can feel like a burden. It's even why God must command us to worship him. It's because our heart is not inclined to worship him. It's inclined to worship idols. And so God must demand us to, against the natural inclination of our heart, serve and worship him. But friends, make no mistake. That instinct that you feel to pull away from God when he commands you to take delight in him, that instinct is your enemy because it's telling you to pull away from the source and sustainer of every good thing. I said this a couple of months back towards the end of Philippians, but I think it bears repeating again. When we say that God is good, we're not just saying that God is the summation of every good thing. Rather, we're saying he's actually the source of every good thing. Meaning there is no good thing that exists apart from God. It all comes from Him. So to dwell in the presence of God is to dwell in the presence of goodness itself. Goodness incarnate, so to speak. The good, the only one good. And conversely, to be cast out of the presence of God is to be separated from goodness itself. And the source of every good and perfect thing. Brothers and sisters, if insanity is defined as a mind that is out of touch with reality, a mind that is unable to perceive things as they really are. And if the danger of this condition is that it causes the subject to engage in activity that is actually harmful to themselves, then we are all born into this world spiritually insane. Because whenever we, we reject the reign of God over our lives and attempt to proclaim ourselves the ruler of this world, either in our thoughts or in our actions, we are living in an utter delusion. We are the spiritual equivalent to the madman who proclaims himself the king of France. It simply isn't true. And not only is it not true, but it's an incredibly harmful delusion because that thought, it takes us away from the only truly good being in the entire universe, the good, the one and only good, and that's God. Spiritual sanity comes when you recognize that you have been created by God to glorify His name, which you do when you take pleasure in, delight in, rejoice over, worship Him. And that this is a good and blessed gift. 
That was more or less the point of my message last week. The text, of course, was 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, as it is again this week. And I said that in order to understand what's going on in this text, you have to have this idea in your mind. That's because when Paul writes these words, he writes them as a response to the Corinthians, who had apparently forgotten this point. This is a fact that comes out a bit later on in 1 Corinthians. It isn't evident from the passage just yet, but what we'll soon discover is that the Corinthians had apparently forgotten this idea. They had forgotten what the appropriate object of their delight was supposed to be. And they're taking delight in the gifts that God supplies rather than in the giver. This is really the source of so many of the conflicts that they're experiencing the, and the confusion that they're experiencing over how they're supposed to conduct themselves in their culture. Their problem, fundamentally, is one of worship. They have, in one form or another, either through the gifts themselves or through what they think these gifts say about them, one way or another, they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the creation. And as I pointed out last week, this is the world's way of thinking. The world tells us that the way to happiness is through the fulfillment of self. That can either be through the fulfillment of selfish desires, the acquisition of your wants and your cravings, or it can be through the exaltation of self. That is to say, through the esteem and the praise that we receive either from other people or, in some instances, even from God himself. Either way, the world says the way to happiness is through the fulfillment of self. And the scripture tells us that the way to happiness is through the emptying of self. That seems so, out, so counterintuitive that it can almost seem like nonsense. Until that is, you remember this point that I mentioned just a moment ago, that man was created for the enjoyment of God. This is how we find happiness through the emptying of self. It's because it's not merely an emptying of self, but rather a redirection of our focus onto the beauty and glory of God. We are to take our eyes off ourselves and instead fix our attention on the greatness of God and find our joy and pleasure there. Once again, the Corinthians had forgotten this point. And in our passage this morning, Paul very subtly directs their attention back onto the proper object of their worship. And that's God. When I think of this passage, I think of some advice C.S. Lewis once gave in a letter to a young fan on how to be a good writer. Lewis gave five basic rules to becoming a good writer. And rule number four was this. He said, in writing... Don't use adjectives which merely tell us how you want us to feel about the thing you are describing. I mean, instead of telling us the thing was terrible, describe it so that we'll be terrified. Don't say it was delightful. Make us say delightful when we've read the description. You see, all those words, horrifying, wonderful, hideous, exquisite, are only like saying to your readers, please, will you do my job for me? I call that the show-don't-tell principle. Because what he's saying there is, don't just tell me a mountain is breathtaking. Show me. And it's really good advice, not just for writers, uh, but honestly, I think for just about anyone else who's involved in any type of communication or leadership, you don't just tell people what they ought to feel, how they should care about the thing that you want them to care about. 
Instead, help them feel it. Show them why they should feel the way you do about that subject. And that's sort of what Paul is doing here. He hears this report of what's going on in Corinth in addition to receiving a letter from the Corinthians wherein they appear to be either asking him several questions or even in, 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 when they may be actually challenging Paul on several matters of application. And it's apparent to Paul that the Corinthians' way of thinking about their faith is seriously distorted. Only Paul doesn't begin this letter by telling them, your perspective is backwards. He doesn't start by saying you're thinking about your greatness when you're supposed to be thinking about God's greatness. Instead, he begins by showing them the greatness of God. In other words, he doesn't tell them God is great. He shows them that God is great. And he does this by reminding them of the grace that God has displayed towards them. Again, I mentioned this last week. The Corinthians are taking delight in the gifts of God rather than in God himself. What's interesting about Paul's response to this misplaced joy is that he doesn't try to minimize those gifts. Since if, since if he did that, that would actually minimize the work of God. So instead, he models the appropriate response to these gifts for the Corinthians. And that's thankfulness. They're not supposed to come away from these gifts marveling at how special they are, but at how wonderful God is, that he would bless them so richly. Overall, the idea is that he directs their attention and focus on God by recalling God's faithfulness to them. And that's what I want to try to do this morning through Paul's thanksgiving for the Corinthians. I don't want to just tell you to delight in God. I want to help you find delight in God. And I want to do this by showing you the surpassing greatness of the character of God as it's displayed here in Paul's thanksgiving for the Corinthians. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Follow along with me, please, as I read 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's interesting about this passage is that there's actually a kind of logical progression that we see unfold in these verses. Paul structures the thanksgiving we just read with four verbs describing the gracious activity of God towards his church in Corinth. You can see it here in the passage. And three of these four verbs are stated passively in order to emphasize that these are things that God has done for the Corinthians. Uh, verse 4, Paul explains that he, he, he's constantly giving thanks to God for the grace that he's shown to the Corinthians. Then we see that grace displayed in four ways. First, he says they were enriched in verse 5. Second, the testimony of Christ was, was confirmed in them in verse 6. Third, he says that God will sustain them to the end in verse 8. There's the, the one verb of these four that's not stated passively. And that's because it's pointing not to the past activity of God, what he's already done for them, but rather what he will perform in the future. 
And then fourth and finally, verse 9, he reminds the Corinthians that they were called by God into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what's interesting about these four verbs is that there's actually a kind of sequence that's taking place here. And it's all very orderly and it makes a lot of sense, except for one point. And that's the last one. Again, that verb is down in verse 9. There Paul talks about how God called the Corinthians into fellowship in Christ Jesus. That's a reference to their salvation. And theologically, there's a sense in which the other three verbs that Paul describes here really flow out of that, meaning these other three verbs are just an expression of the Corinthians' salvation. Again, conceptually, there's a sense in which those other three verbs flow all the way from our justification to our sanctification here on earth, and then finally to the Corinthians' glorification in heaven. And so you'd think that logically this shouldn't be the last point. It should be the first point. After all, what's more significant than our salvation? So if this is the foundation for every other concept in this sequence, why not start there? Why not start with the most important thing in this list. So why start with what is logically the second act of God in this sequence? And I think that's, it's because that particular action, the second one in this list, has to do with the concept that the Corinthians are fascinated with. And that's their giftedness. What Paul is about to show us is that the Corinthians were an incredibly gifted church. And many of their problems are rooted in the fact that they're preoccupied with these gifts. So Paul starts with the object of their preoccupation, even one of the major topics of this upcoming letter, in order to set it all in the proper perspective. Or to put it another way, it's not Paul that's setting things out of order. It's the Corinthians. Again, they've got things turned around. They're delighting in the gift rather than the giver. Or to put it still another way, part of the problem is that the Corinthians are not interpreting these gifts in light of their salvation. The gifts are indeed an expression of their salvation. And in this sense, they're actually supposed to point the Corinthians back to that idea and the grace that God displayed to them at the cross. The problem is that the Corinthians don't see their salvation and its outcome as the real gift. Again, they flip the order. They think that the cross is there for the gifts, when the fact is the gifts are there to point back to the cross. And so that's exactly the way Paul interacts with the gifts here. He doesn't start with the cross and move his way forward, since that would actually play into the Corinthians' current way of thinking. Instead, he starts with the gifts, and he traces his way back to the cross, back to the real gift. And that's their salvation. Hopefully this makes sense what I'm saying here. The order here matters. It's showing us how we're supposed to think about the gifts, what the gifts are supposed to point to. Paul is, is reframing that entire discussion, and he's reframing it so that they can actually trace their way from the gifts back to what they're supposed to point to, and that's the character of God. God is faithful, Paul says at the end of this passage. This is what the gifts demonstrate. They demonstrate the faithfulness of God. And it shows them that God has called them into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, this is the real prize. It's not the gifts. It's what the gifts point to. And that's the fact that the Corinthians have been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Meaning when the Corinthians see the gifts, they're not supposed to walk away thinking, wow, how awesome is it that I can do this now? 
Instead, they're supposed to see the gifts and think, I can't believe that I get to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Again, because that's what they point to. That's what they're a demonstration of. They're supposed to point them to the real prize. And that's that they get to know Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this is how I want to frame our discussion this morning. The whole direction of this passage is pointing us to the greatness and beauty of God. And so the way I want to frame this discussion is by pointing out three attributes of God that we see on display in this passage. And you can think of these attributes as three reasons why you should delight in God. And the first reason is this. Number one, delight in God because He's a gracious God. Take pleasure in God because He's a gracious God. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Once again, verse 4, Paul explains that he's constantly giving thanks to God for the grace that he's shown to the Corinthians. And then in verses 5 through 7, he begins to explain how that grace has been made manifest, saying that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I said a second ago that one of the interesting things about this passage is how it unfolds. The order that Paul takes in describing this thanksgiving. Well, another fascinating element to this passage is both the kind of blessing that Paul describes here and who he's ascribing this blessing to. Let's just run down the list for a moment, shall we? Let's take a brief overview of what we're about to encounter in this book, what we're going to see about who the Corinthians are and the kinds of sins that they're struggling with. Chapters 1 through 3, we discover worldliness, division, and pride. They're not only acting like their faith in Christ is something that they've done themselves, that's the pride part, but this belief is leading them both to seek a kind of knowledge that is acceptable to worldly standards and to start a kind of spiritual competition among each other over who's the wisest among them. Chapter 4, we begin to discover that this pride is leading some of them to contend with Paul and to even hold him in contempt. They're so arrogant that they're beginning to perhaps look down on the Apostle Paul, his way of doing things seems so backwards and even quaint by their way of thinking. They're kind of looking down their nose at him. Chapter 5, we learn that they're allowing sexual immorality to take place in the church, and they're even boasting about it. Chapter 6, they're apparently suing one another. They're taking each other to court to settle their disputes instead of working together to come to a common understanding in their arguments. Chapter 7, we learn that some may be forbidding marriage and others are apparently even considering divorce in order to cut themselves off from any kind of sexual relationship. That's actually sort of odd considering that Paul has to end chapter 6 by warning the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality. This is just an incredibly confused church. They're all over the map. 
Chapters 8 and 9, the quote-unquote knowledgeable among them are exercising their liberties to the detriment of those in the church who hold a weaker conscience. Chapter 10, Paul has to tell them to not participate in the worship of idols. <coughs> Chapter 11, we find out that they're engaged in such a gross abuse of the Lord's table that God is actually striking some of them dead in response. Chapters 12 through 14, we learn that they're using God's gifts as a source of boasting, and it's resulting in this incredibly self-centered and chaotic Worship service. Chapter 15, they're doubting the resurrection. I mean, are you getting a sense of what's going on here? The church of God at Corinth is anything but a model church. It's sort of funny. I remember back when I lived in Nashville, every so often, as I was driving out to one of the warehouses at Wilson, I had passed by this little country church, Corinth Church of Christ. And that always perplexed me. I always thought, why in the world would you ever name a church after the Corinthian church? Why not the Philippian church of Christ or the Thessalonian church of Christ? Why the Corinthian church of Christ? It had to be explained to me. It's because of 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. You have these little country churches who will call themselves Corinthian something or other church because they want to stress the idea of love in their congregation. To which I say, well, then call yourself Philadelphia Church of Christ because there's at least something admirable about that church in Revelation. I, I have a hard time seeing what's good about the Church of God at Corinth. And yet Paul notes, he notes that God has still enriched this church in all speech and all knowledge so that they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. The word for knowledge here is the word gnosis in the Greek. The word for speech is logos. When a person thinks of ancient Greece, probably one of the first things they think of are ancient philosophers. Men like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Ancient Greece was a civilization that valued philosophical wisdom and brilliant oration. In Corinth, though a Roman colony, was no different. It was even known to be a kind of intellectual powerhouse at the time due to the uh, patronage that was offered by its burgeoning upper class. And so one may be tempted to think that when Paul talks of being enriched in all speech and all knowledge, that he's referring to this kind of speech and knowledge. He's referring to the spiritual knowledge that the Corinthians have received in Christ, a knowledge that Paul will compare to the wisdom of, of the world just a few verses later in this chapter. Uh, so, for instance, this would refer to the knowledge of the fact that uh, Jesus is God's Christ. It would refer to the fact that God has accomplished salvation through his crucifixion and death, even knowledge of the coming resurrection of the dead. This was all the kind of knowledge that uh, Gentile culture found incredibly foolish. Uh, Paul was practically even laughed out of Athens when he started preaching on the resurrection of the dead. The Corinthian church, however, had accepted these realities. And as Paul pointed out later in this chapter, that's a result of God's work in them. So maybe this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about knowledge. He's referring to this wisdom that the Corinthians have received in Christ, this knowledge of salvation that's superior to the wisdom of the world. In like manner, when Paul refers to speech here, perhaps he's referring to the ability to communicate these truths with spiritual power, either to 
outsiders or even to those inside the church. Again, later on in this very chapter, and on into chapter 2, Paul is going to contrast his style of teaching with the style of teaching typified by the world. Again, by comparison, Paul's approach looks foolish, but as he goes on to explain in chapter 2, it's accompanied by a spiritual power that's very difficult to explain. So maybe Paul's referring to this kind of speech. Indeed, in the very next passage, Paul begins to address the fact that the Corinthians are beginning to distinguish themselves by the teachers they follow. So this would seem to make sense that Paul is referring to this kind of speech, this speech that accompanies teaching, essentially a kind of powerful oratory. And no doubt it's probably fair to assume that this phrase includes this kind of speech and knowledge, but here in verse 7, Paul notes that they were enriched in this way, quote, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. The word here is charisma. And it means simply gift, but in this sort of a context, it tends to take on almost a technical sense and refers to what you or I would tend to call a spiritual gift, which is why the ESV translates it the way it does. Paul says that they were not lacking any spiritual charisma, any spiritual gift. That's notable because as you move further into this letter, you discover that there are an assortment of spiritual gifts that, be, that seem to be connected to these ideas of speech and knowledge all of which the Corinthians seemed to possess in abundance. Indeed, Paul seems to refer to knowledge as a spiritual gift in its own right in chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, saying, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. This idea seems to be confirmed in chapter 14 when he sets knowledge alongside other kinds of spiritually empowered, you know, quote unquote, truth or knowledge gifts, saying, verse 6, chapter 14, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? That particular passage also opens up this idea of what Paul might mean by speech. The idea of speaking in tongues is going to come up quite a bit later on in this book. It would appear from Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14 that the Corinthians are not only incredibly gifted in the, the gifts that pertain to knowledge, but even most especially in the gifts that pertain to speech and most specifically in the gift of tongues. And so when Paul refers to the Corinthians being enriched in all speech and all knowledge, it's possible He's referring to the entire gamut of concepts attached to these ideas, but it would seem he's most definitely referring to the actual spiritual giftedness of the Corinthians in particular. It would appear that in spite of the problems that they're experiencing, or I think, as you'll see in a minute here, uh, perhaps you might even say because of the problems they're experiencing, God has blessed this church abundantly with all manner of spiritual gifts. And it would seem most especially the gifts that have to do with communication and instruction. Paul notes that they were not lacking in any spiritual gift in this passage. You could either take that to mean that of the spiritual gifts that have been given, God has blessed them so that they don't come up short in any part of the exercise of those gifts. Or it can mean that God has actually given them literally every gift at the Spirit's disposal for the edification of the church. 
So it could refer either to the quality or the quantity of the gifts. Either way, the point is that God has blessed this church abundantly. In other words, there's a reason why the Corinthians might be getting a little cocky here, folks. There's a reason why they may even be starting to look down their nose at Paul a little bit. And it's because God has blessed this church so richly that they're starting to see themselves as his equal. They've been gifted to that extent. Isn't that interesting? Here's this church that, in terms of their behavior, again, seems like an exceedingly rotten church. And yet it almost sounds like God has blessed this church even abundantly beyond all of the other churches in terms of the spiritual gifts. Now, I don't know that we can say that definitively, but the way that Paul talks about this church, it almost feels that way. So what's the deal? Why would God do this? Why would he take a church like this and bless them so exceedingly? And it would seem that there are two answers that we could find to this question, both of which I think are in this passage. The first of which comes here in verse 6 with this word confirmed. Paul says that God enriched the church in this way, quote, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The entire image here, just so you know, is one that's borrowed from commercial law. The word for testimony, martyrion, carries the idea of witness. Uh, you know how a notary public will sometimes sign and seal certain business transactions to act as a third-party witness to the agreement and to testify to the fact that the signatories did indeed sign the document themselves and all of that. You guys have seen that before. That's similar to how Paul is using this term witness here. Only the witness in this sense isn't some third-party observer. It's God himself. God himself is bearing witness to this legal transaction he's performed with the Corinthians, this covenant that he's made with them. And the way he's done it is by blessing them with these spiritual gifts. If I could put it this way, it's sort of like if you've ever bought anything on layaway. I don't know if you've ever bought anything on layaway before. It's kind of not as popular as it used to be. But just in case you haven't, the whole concept of buying on layaway is that you don't have the money to afford what you want to buy right now. And so instead of buying on credit, you ask the store to set aside the item, to lay it away, so you can come back and purchase it later. In other words, you're saying you have the intention to buy it, but you haven't bought it just yet. And what do you do to testify to that intent? What do you do to confirm that you're serious about coming back and buying it later on? Well, you put a down payment on it. That's essentially what Paul is saying God has done here. The, this word enrich in verse 5 carries the commercial terminology all the way through. God has supplied the spiritual gifts as a kind of down payment indicating that he intends to come back and complete his work of redemption later on. Now I ask you, why would God need to do that? <clears throat> I mean, do I really need to go through the list again? <laughs> right? In fact, I think it's sort of funny. I actually started chuckling to myself as I was thinking about this passage this week. 
You know how when a person is buying on bad credit, when they're buying on bad credit, they're often required to supply a larger down payment in order to demonstrate that they're really serious about completing the purchase. Well, friends, that's sort of what God has done here with the Corinthians. God has enriched them. The word literally means to make wealthy. There's just an overabundance of spiritual giftedness in the Corinthians. And this is all in order to confirm that he intends to complete the purchase later on. And the implication almost seems to be that if he didn't bless them so abundantly, then a guy like Paul might be tempted to doubt whether or not these Christians are even in the faith. I mean, really, just think about the type of stuff that's going on in the church. It's, it's bad enough that Paul has to unilaterally discipline members because the church is refusing to perform that discipline on their own. In any other situation, you might be tempted to think that these aren't even Christians. Except for the fact that God's choice of them has, is so abundantly evident in the spiritual gifts. It's like God saying, no, no, listen, I really mean it. I'm coming back to buy this. You don't believe me? Here's 50% down. I think that sort of puts this whole matter of giftedness into perspective, doesn't it? I mean, is this really something to be boasting in? That God has to prove his intent to purchase to that degree? Because this is more or less what Paul is saying. So what this giftedness demonstrates is, is not the greatness of the Corinthians, but the greatness of God's grace to the Corinthians. And I mean that in the true sense of this word. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. And that's what we see on display here. God is blessing the Corinthians, not with what they deserve, but with what they need. Just based on their performance, they don't deserve the gifts, but given the state of their spiritual condition, they most definitely need this kind of confirmation. And so God gives them that confirmation even when they don't deserve it. Paul sees that confirmation, this grace from God, and he gives thanks for it. Isn't this just an amazing thing to consider? God's character is such that he doesn't just give to his children according to what they deserve, but according to what they need, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. Emily is often very faithful to remind me of this point from time to time. There's most definitely a, a self-righteous streak in me. I don't know about you, but there's that in me where there are moments when I think that I'll have to get my act together before I can start asking God for the things I need. I'll see something I need or maybe even just something I, I merely desire that I think is a good thing. And she'll notice that I'm not asking God for it. Why aren't you praying to God for it, she'll ask me. And I don't know, I'll say, is, is God really going to hear me when I've been so disobedient? And before you go around thinking I'm just a faithless person, understand there's a reason why I say that. The scripture says that God rewards those who seek him. It says that it won't hear the prayers of those who ask for wrong motives. It says draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. It says that he disciplines those he loves. And the way I'll interpret that at times is to assume that if I'm struggling with a sin, then God is basically against me until I work my way through it. And when that happens, Emily will have to remind me, Ryan, God's grace doesn't work that way. He wants you to come to him, and if it's something you truly need, then he'll grant it to you whether you deserve it or not. 
And friends, she's absolutely right. Indeed, that's typically part of my repentance in believing in the goodness of God, the grace of God in drawing near to him once again. Brothers and sisters, if you're like me and and, and you have that self-righteous streak running through you, allow me to present to you Exhibit A in the form of these Corinthians believers. And if we had time, then I could present to you Exhibits B, C, D, and so on, and men like Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and Peter and even Paul himself. Our God is not a God who merely blesses after we've cleaned ourselves up. No, He blesses us before. He blesses us in spite of who we are so we can receive the things we truly need. In fact, if I could take this idea even a step further, there's a sense in which He doesn't simply bless us in spite of who we are, but even because of who we are. This point comes out in verse 8. And this is where we see the second reason why you should delight in God. You should delight in God, of course, because He's a gracious God. But you should also delight in God because He is a providing God. He's a providing God. And just so you know, the ball is rolling downhill now, so we're going to start to pick up some speed on these last two points. A couple of moments ago, I said that there are two reasons why God would bless a church like this so abundantly. The first reason, of course, is captured with this word, confirmed. God blesses this church abundantly because of the strong testimony to their faith that's required under these circumstances. The second reason is captured in this word sustain. Verse 8, Paul notes that God will, quote, sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the grace of God is just astounding in that statement. Here is this incredibly flawed church, and yet Paul is confident that they're going to be found guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God is is that sufficient. It covers all sin. Now, once again, these gifts are a kind of down payment. They're a demonstration of the fact that God is going to finish what he started. This is where Paul's confidence is coming from. It's coming from the testimony of these gifts. The question is, how is God going to sustain these people? And consider who these people are. Consider where they live. I don't know if you remember, but I said a couple weeks ago that the Corinthians not only lived in a pre-Christian society, but they're living in a pluralistic and incredibly secularized society, a city that possesses virtually every opportunity that a person could possibly want to pursue the acclaim and pleasures of this world. I mean, do you know what this is like to live in Corinth? Do you know what the modern equivalent to living in Corinth would be like? I imagine it'd be a bit like living in the heart of downtown Manhattan. And you've heard the phrase, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, with reference to New York. Well, that's what people said about Corinth. I mentioned this back in our very first week in this book. There was a saying at the time which said, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. It referred to how hard it was to make it there. This was, again, an extremely competitive city. Only the excellent survived. Only the very best of the best. And that's what these Corinthians were. They were among the best of the best, and Corinth presented them with every opportunity 
to fulfill that potential and really make it in this world. In fact, I think you can say it didn't just present them with this opportunity, it beckoned them. It called them to come and find their fill in this world, in this life. Can you imagine how challenging that would be spiritually? Every now and then I'll come across a Christian who's at the top of their field, incredibly gifted. And they're living right in the thick of it in cities like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago. And every time I wonder to myself, how do they do it? How do they survive those kinds of pressures spiritually? And the answer is right here in verse 8. They don't do it. God does. Right? God sustains them. And how does He sustain them? I, I think in this instance it's probably fair to say that it's part of what these spiritual gifts are about. Again, the Corinthians appear to be gifted generally, but it would seem that they're gifted with what you might call the truth gifts specifically. Knowledge gifts. These would be things like prophecy and, and teaching and knowledge. Knowledge, by the way, that probably refers to the ability to discern doctrinal truth. Some are good at discovering that truth. Other goods are, others are good at communicating it. Still others, it would seem, are receiving direct revelation from God. This would also include things like the gift of tongues, which are, just so you know, an actual foreign language. And they allow the communication of truth from one language group to another. Overall, they're gifts that are given for the spiritual edification of the church, as opposed to, say, the gifts of generosity or the gift of mercy. Gifts which, if the Corinthians do possess, they certainly seem to have trouble exercising them. A survey of Corinthians will show you that these gifts, these truth gifts, are the gifts that they seem to be boasting about. That's probably the source of their arrogance with Paul. It's also at the root of the divisions that are erupting within the church. <laughs> Think about it. Why would God supply a church that so obviously struggles with pride with these particular gifts? And I think the answer is because that's what they need. What the church at Corinth needs, perhaps even more than the church in cities like Philippi or Thessalonica or Ephesus, is truth. Again, they need tongues because they, more than anyone else, live in an international city where people from every corner of the empire are coming to make their fortune. They need knowledge and teaching to buffet them against the religious pluralism of a city that possesses no less than 26 sacred places of worship to foreign gods. They might even need a gift like prophecy to instruct them in how to navigate the very difficult social situations they find themselves in as they try to find their way in an incredibly secularized society. Again, think of the baby Christian living in the heart of downtown Manhattan, the brand new believer who's going to work every day at Rockefeller Center. If you were to pray for that Christian, what sort of gifts would you pray for them to receive? Would it not be these very kinds of gifts? Well, that's probably the same reason why God has supplied the Corinthians with these gifts as well. Yes, they may have trouble receiving the gifts with the right attitude, but again, God isn't giving them what they deserve, but what they need. This is what I mean when I say that he's blessing the Corinthians 
not just in spite of who they are, but because of who they are. It's because the Corinthians are so flawed. It's because they're so entangled with the thinking of this world that God blesses them this way. Listen, they need all the help they can get. In the end, this seems to be partly why Paul is so confident that God is going to sustain them until the end. It's not simply that God has confirmed the Corinthians with the giving of spiritual gifts generally, but he supplied them with the very gifts necessary for their perseverance in the faith. So Paul sees this, and he recognizes. Clearly, God intends to finish what he started. The Corinthians may be a work in progress, but they're God's work nonetheless, and he intends to finish it. And this leads Paul to the conclusion that when the day of the Lord Jesus Christ comes, this very troubled and flawed church is going to be standing there with him before God, guiltless, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Isn't this awesome? We don't just worship a gracious God. We worship a providing God. We worship a God who supplies us with everything we need to live and move and have our being. And that's not just true physically. He's the sustainer of our spiritual life as well. He doesn't just send rain upon the earth to water the ground and cause the crops to grow. He pours out his spirit as well. So that the gospel seed that's been sown in our hearts might grow and bear the fruit of righteousness and with it its outcome, eternal life. That's not something we do ourselves. It's something that God does for us. He gives us absolutely everything necessary for eternal life. And this leads us to our last point. Again, let's, like I said a minute ago, we're rolling downhill at this point, so we're going to pick up speed through this point as well, our last reason for delighting in God is simply this. You should delight in God because He's a faithful God. He's a gracious God, He's a providing God, and He's a faithful God. Paul concludes his thanksgiving in verse 9. God is faithful, he says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, the Corinthians have it so completely backwards. When they see the gifts, they see an expression of their superiority, their greatness. But when Paul sees the gifts, he sees an expression of God's faithfulness. That's because what the gifts point to is the fact that God is going to finish what He started. The Corinthians have some serious flaws as a church, but God hasn't given up on them. Instead, He's equipped them with everything necessary to persevere in the faith and remain faithful to the end. The giftedness of the Corinthians testifies to this fact that God has set His love on this church and it will not be thwarted. doesn't matter whether they live in this incredibly secularized society or not. doesn't matter... You know, that they're exposed to every pressure and temptation that you could possibly imagine. doesn't matter what error and sin they brought with them when they came into the faith. God has determined that He is going to redeem this people, and so He will bring their salvation to pass, and they will dwell in fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
And for this, Paul gives thanks. He delights himself in the faithfulness of God. And this is what I would want you to think about this morning, ladies and gentlemen. The faithfulness of God, I think you can really say that this is the summary attribute of this passage. God's gracious provision to the Corinthians, it all testifies to the fact that God is faithful. Again, the gifts don't point to the character of the Corinthians, at least not in a very good way. Instead, it points to the character of God. And the chief characteristic that's on display is His faithfulness. The gifts are saying that God's not going to quit on the Corinthians no matter their flaws and their struggles. And if we wanted to, we could spend time talking about how that faithfulness encourages us to draw near to God by reminding us that He will always supply our needs. And back towards the beginning of today's message, for instance, I said that the Scripture, uh, rather, that the world tells us that the way to happiness is through the fulfillment of self. That can either be through the fulfillment of selfish desires, the acquisition of wants and cravings, or it can be through the exaltation of self, uh, you know, getting praise from either God or other people. Either way, the world says the way to happiness is through the fulfillment of self. The scripture, again, tells us that the way to happiness is through the emptying of self. And if you want to know how that dynamic works, how we can find joy in the emptying of self, Part of that answer is right here in the faithfulness of God. The reason why we can empty ourselves and still find happiness, the reason why we don't have to try to seize those things we think we need in order to be happy is because we serve a faithful God. In other words, we don't have to fight for whatever, whatever it is we think we need because we serve a wise and gracious God who will supply us with what we need even in spite of, or again, perhaps you could say because of, who we are. And He's a gracious God and a providing God. So we empty ourselves by submitting to His will instead of trying to seize control of our lives. And in return, this gracious and faithful God provides us with everything we need. If we wanted to, we could spend some time thinking about that, applying that to our lives. But I actually don't want you to end on that thought. Because I think if we were to end there, it's still very easy to think that the object of your delight is supposed to be the gift. And it's not. The gift is designed to point to the giver. I don't know if you've noticed here, but I didn't try to present these points today as God's grace to you or of His provision for you, or of His faithfulness to you. Instead, I've framed these points entirely in light of God's grace to the Corinthians. If I wanted to, I could frame these concepts in this way, and indeed, I, I even started to do that. God is gracious to you. He has provided for you. He is faithful to you. But as I started to think about that, I realized that this would miss the point entirely. Again, yes, God is gracious to you. Yes, He does provide for you. He is faithful to you. But the entire point that I'm driving at is to get you to take your eyes off yourselves and instead direct them on God. Because that's what the gifts are designed to do. They're there to cause you to do what Paul does here at the end of this passage. And that's worship 
And so instead of thinking about how the faithfulness of God reminds you of God's provision for you, I'd actually encourage you to flip the order around. Consider how God's provision for you reminds you of the faithfulness of God and worship. Once again, this is the purpose for which you've been created. It's the reason why God made you. He made you for joy. He wants you to glorify His name by loving Him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And there's really no better existence that we could possibly wish for than this one, to be created to delight in the majesty of Almighty God. And so with that in mind, I don't have any application for you this week. At least not in the traditional sense of this word. I don't, I don't have anything that I'm going to tell you to go out and do as a result of what you've heard here today. Instead, I want you to simply behold the, mute, the beauty and majesty of God in this passage and worship. Let's pray.